Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Miguel Delaney of The Independent and by Dominic Fifield of The Athletic. My special guest is James Milner. He captained Liverpool in Madrid but couldn't prevent their elimination from the Champions League. I came away from our chat convinced he has a long-term future at Anfield in the coaching department. In the short term, Manchester City will be the favourites when the draw for the last eight of the Champions League is made on Friday. So Dom, is Europe about to bow to the inevitable? I'm pretty sure this time last year we said exactly the same thing and possibly the year before (laughs) that and the year before that. Everything screams out that Manchester City and the Champions League are... It's there for the taking. It's 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 theirs if they if they find the form at the right times, if they find the performances at the right times. But you know, until that draw is made on Friday, and we know who they're up against, and then who they get in the semi-finals and 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 the final, it's it's almost pointless now. We've been here so many times before. Well, the one thing that is certain is that when you wallop a team in the in the fashion that they did in that second leg then the shockwaves are going to be felt around the competition and everybody else is going to look at them and think, yeah, well, if we do come up against them, we've got to come up with a contingency plan to try and try and nullify Haaland, to try and stop the supply line into him from, from De Bruyne, from Grealish, from Foden, from Mares. And, you know, even when you just list those talents and, and, and others in that team, then, then then the sort of size of the task of, of confronting them and beating them and knocking them out is uh, is laid bare. Yeah, you were in Madrid while that game was going on, Meeks, in preparation for the Liverpool game. What impact did that City victory have over there? Not that much. I mean, I suppose, which is maybe a reflection of Madrid's confidence. And I must say, one of the things that struck about the Madrid-Liverpool game was how it feels Madrid have gone up a level from last season, where last season, like, you know, the most successful club in European history were held up as sort of upstarts, kind of defying aging or transition whereas now and I suppose this sometimes happens when teams win that major trophy in that way they feel a much more fully formed side much more conviction with so many of the younger players like like Kamavinga going on to to a higher level 
So from that perspective, uh, I have to say it didn't make much impact. Madrid or Madrid in that sense. As Ancelotti said after the game, everyone knows us. But I also wonder as well in that, as, as Dom said, it's the scale of the thrashing that potentially kind of sends a warning to the rest of Europe. But this isn't really new. I mean, in, in Guardiola's seven seasons at City, this is the third time he's played Bundesliga opposition in the last 16. And he's put 22 goals past them, which is probably kind of a, a indication of kind of wider issues in European football. But um, it's been one of those things that happens. In a bit of an increasing sense of repetitiveness in the Champions League, I have to say, this season at least. But certainly, the, the one thing, it, it does feel like in this in this last date, there's, a, there's three clear kind of elite or favourites to our City, Bayern Munich and Madrid. With Napoli then kind of seen as maybe the great, uh, not quite dark horses, but the potential revelations. Yeah, well, with Erling Haaland, you know, what more can we say? I suppose we've got to say something. Why don't we have a quick sweepstake on how many goals he's going to end up with at the end of the season? <laughs> um, if they win everything, they've got potentially 18 games left. <laughs> how many has he got at the moment? So I, 39? 39. I'm going to take 55. Oh, that was what I was going to say. Uh, that was literally my figure as well. <laughs> Can we go with that? <laughs> we'll go with 55. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, it's also obvious, I think, that, that City being City will, will add from a position of strength in the summer. Who's going to be their next marquee signing, do you think, Dom? You know, I, I made a point of watching Napoli on Wednesday night just to get a sense of, of whether they could become you know, viable Champions League title winners. And I was convinced, I must admit. What about um, uh, Kavica Karapcelia? He's already been compared to George Best. He looks like a City-United type player. Yeah, look, he's a fantastic talent. I, I don't know where, how you'd crowbar him in, necessarily. I mean, there are plenty of other talents in the way in that area. When you look at City, I mean, there are not many areas of obvious weakness I don't, I don't know my instinct always sort of gravitates towards a, a midfielder but then then I guess if Cancelo's out on on loan and and it may have burnt his bridges with with City possibly strengthening in that area might be a way to go but yeah you're right they they will certainly use the the transfer windows available to them before any sanctions might be imposed however long the legal proceedings are, are going to rumble along in the background to ensure that they are in a position of of, of strength and, and they, they are ever evolving, ever improving. Because they, even if they won the Champions League this season and ended that sort of quest that, that Pep Guardiola has been on since, since his appointment there, I don't think that their ambition, their thirst for more success is going to be quenched. They're, they're going to they're going to move on. They're going to snowball on to, to something else and that they'll want to they want to see off the next challenge that to, to them domestically, which presumably will be Arsenal for for a while, and and a, and a revamp Liverpool, and a, you know see where Chelsea go next, and they will they will be up for taking on those challenges. Manchester United down the road, you know, under Ten Hag are potentially a different proposition, and and so they will strengthen them, and they will always be scope for improvement in Pep's Pep's mind. Yeah, Napoli. Migs, 18 points clear in Syria. Ah, 
you know, what what really impressed me, you know, there is a great package there, isn't there? You know, the recruitment is terrific. Tactical organisation is is fantastic. There's fluidity, speed on transition, and those natural goal scorers they've got. And there has to be a but here, doesn't there? Is this their best and only chance to win the Champions League simply because of the economic realities and the inferiority of certain clubs compared to the English? The one thing I, I would broadly agree, and I, I, from a wider perspective, isn't it kind of a classic example of the whole boiling frog when this season, when Napoli, who are one of Serie A's strongest, one of the great names of Italian football history, and Serie A itself, who out of nowhere almost have become the best resembled team in the Champions League quarterfinals, when they're kind of held up as revelations. I mean, Italy, it's it's pretty remarkable. But And I would generally agree with you. The one thing I do think, first of all, I suppose, Napoli, out of all those sort of clubs, are notoriously difficult to do to do business with. And one of the reasons they're actually here is because they managed to keep on the talent for so long, like Koulibaly. Oh, it was only in the summer that they finally decided, well, okay, let's let these let these let these players go. Now that was seen as a bit of a um, a potential kind of that the club were going to go into a trans- transition at that point because of that. Instead, it was the making of this new young brilliant team. And I do wonder as well, say if they don't win the Champions League this season, but they win Serie A, as looks inevitable now, whether there's at least the emotional persuasion to make Ossiman and, and Kvartskelia stay for one more season for that big punt of the Champions League. That's the only kind of potential edge that, but yeah, just with the normal market forces, the way the game is going, the way everything is subsumed in the Premier League now, where you would think, certainly Ossiman at least, might move on in the summer. And once one big player goes like that, it's usually kind of the, the, the start of the end. Yeah, well, they'll be queuing around the block for Ossiman, won't they, Dom? Will Chelsea be at the head of that queue, do you think? You know, there is a link, if you think about it, emotionally at least, that his hero is Didier Drogba. You know, the thought of emulating him would probably be some form of motivation. Any chance? Well, you've always got to say there's a chance because Chelsea aren't afraid to to spend big money. But I think the priority at Chelsea initially will be clearing some players off the books and they also have this rather big issue of uh, what happens to Romelu Lukaku at the end of the season um, I know there was some talking in, in Milan this week that Inter expect him to go back to Chelsea at the end of his what has been a rather disappointing loan move to date although that, that may end up just being the, the sort of first negotiating point over some kind of arrangement to keep him there in, in future but I think as much as as much as Chelsea's transfer policy has felt a bit scattergun and just buy 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 whatever whatever's out there whatever talent you can identify, at some point they're going to have to to get together Clear Lake and 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 Tom Bowley and Potter and the numerous recruitment staff that they've they've taken on board and work out a coherent plan as to what happens next. And I suspect that that will begin by clearing some bodies off the books. Yeah. How revealing do you think it is, Migs, that, you know, we are the main area of conjecture is precisely that, you know, who are they going to, you know, get rid of in the market, you know, rather than looking at their realistic chances in the in the Champions League. I can't see him going beyond the quarterfinals, can you? Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure, I must say. I mean, so much is going to depend on the draw. Yeah. I mean, and I, already now you you would think is that the, that four I picked out earlier would probably be kind of the perspective 
best case semi-final in terms of kind, I suppose, the competitive diversity of it. Now, I suppose like Milan, Inter, Benfica, my, 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 Chelsea might my, my resist that. This is one case just because it does feel like a bit of a split competition. Moral, and, it, and it's usually at this point of the season, this, this, this is relevant to what we're saying about Man City as well, where the competition is getting more exacting. Instead, because of where a number of clubs are, including Chelsea, it does feel like actually it's kind of clearing and it depends and it's more important than ever who gets who in this in this quarterfinal. And that could well lead to, I suppose, not quite a surprise winner, but something that doesn't, I mean, again, the classic example is 2021 when it all looked like it was going to be set up for, for Man City and, and Chelsea and Tuchel undercut them. And that's also the nature of knockout football as well. It, it also would be actually just in it from a wider perspective, given that we've started this talking about City actually doing it, if they did do it at a point where in echoes of 2020, although they were eventually um, in, in the cast case, the uh, the punishment of a Champions League BAM is overturned. If they won it while they have these charges for multiple alleged breaches of the Premier League's financial fair play rules. But yeah, again, I think everything is going to come down to the draw on Friday, which is much more important than ever. Mm. The Bundesliga's inferiority, economically at least, has been felt. Only Bayern remain perennial contenders, aren't they, uh, Dom? Absolutely. I mean... I, I I watched the if you watch the PSG game and you just look at the talent that was on their their bench it was absolutely terrifying I mean they're, they're very few clubs Premier League or or others uh, who who can boast having that much quality on the bench to to fling onto a into a game against you know Paris Saint Germain haven't had the greatest of, of of times in Europe this season I, I suppose you could argue but that uh, they were considered contenders by some for that competition and yet here we are with with Bayern Munich starting the game, going into the lead and then bringing on Gnabry, bringing on Leroy Sane, bringing on Sadio Mane, bringing on Yao Cancelo. I mean, it's <laughs> that's that's ludicrous. That is absolutely ludicrous. So yeah, they they would be a, a, a team to avoid. And you know, if you are Manchester City, you'd you'd, you'd rather hope that. I don't know, Bayern Munich drew Real Madrid and one of those two got knocked out and then you could just sneak in on the outside because mm-hmm. it's I wouldn't I wouldn't fancy taking on them with the with with the quality and of those starters, I mean just a word on Musiala who I I know he was he had his moments and was was brilliant at times in the World Cup but his performances against top quality experienced opponents at that age quite remarkable. He is he is some talent it certainly is, yeah. Liverpool, I think we you know, agree, don't we, that there's going to be a summer change ahead for them, Migs. What was the fallout like from that defeat uh, in the Bernabeu? And also, just looking forward, do you think they could even dare to contemplate selling Mo Salah? Well, see, evidently, I mean, as you've um, implied there, Mike, they need significant overhaul. I mean, even now they're using seven to nine players from that team that was so successful for four to five years. So they really do need big change. But of course, what completed the last big change? Well, while they were obviously putting everything in place, and you can see that with signings like Gagpo and the introduction of players like Bajetich, what really completed, of course, was the sale of one big player in Coutinho that allowed them to truly complete the side with enough funding for Allison, 
and for Van Dijk. And you do wonder now, especially given there is such a need for change, whether, yeah, it is a time to sell one of the big names for the point of regeneration. It's And this is the level they're at now, and that's what they have to start thinking about. Because otherwise, otherwise that's how you let kind of a stagnation to kind of affect the club. And there was a bit of a feel. I mean, it's interesting. It's got a bit back and forth, especially with the with the seven 0 win over Manchester United. With that, did see Gagpo, Darwin, and Salah complement each other really well. But the, the feel is still a kind of the end of a cycle. Now I know we've been saying that for some time, and and even Liverpool would stood it last season. But that was genuinely the, the atmosphere around the game last night, and even the fact that what we didn't see that kind of great stirring response for Liverpool. It was like we were always waiting for them. Now, of course, a lot of that had to do with Real Madrid and how superbly they control things. But um, it's interesting from that perspective as well, actually, because if you, if you want an example, I know a lot of people are loath to criticise how Real Madrid go about their business, especially given wide, wider ambition to the Super League and that. But they've actually been a model of keeping kind of quality players there while gradually bringing through, it's amazing how, and it was basically in a response to kind of state-owned clubs and the power of the Premier League, that Madrid kind of changed their model, which was always going for the, for the next big thing. And suddenly now you've got Camavinga, who I thought was brilliant last night. Vinicius, of course, has grown into one of the best players in the world. Players that they've brought in over the last few years that Liverpool had, had done well. And of course, all this articulated by this battle over Jude Bellingham. Yeah. Well, James Milner is, by common consent, a manager in the making. It wouldn't surprise me if he takes up some form of player-coach role next season. He certainly talked with quiet authority about culture, coaching and his future when we met before the Madrid time. James, welcome and obviously thanks for your time. I once spent a season in the dressing room at Millwall for a book and the culture was created and maintained by four or five senior pros who set and sustained the standards both professionally and personally with the group. Now obviously I'm not aware of the dynamics of your dressing room but I suspect it's quite similar. I called those four or five senior pros the governors. Are you one of Liverpool's governors? Um, probably, yeah. I think um, you know when the manager came in, he, he wanted to set about early, and he he got um, the team to vote who they wanted to have in their captain's committee. Four or five players. So obviously it was the the captain Jordan was one, and I was the other, and then voted for the other three, and that's changed over time. Obviously with players leaving and things like that, but the players always had their say, and um, that's always worked well. So those are the guys who. If ever there's a meeting needed or take messages up and if the manager wants to spread a feeling throughout the camp or something without holding a meeting himself, you know, he'll, he'll say what he's looking for to us guys. But that's always been the way it's been done. And, you know, I think it's obviously very important, but we have a very good group here and everyone gets on very well. You, you naturally have the people from certain areas of the world who sit on a table together and things like that. But if you chuck any two players from anywhere in the world in this team together, you know, they'd have a great chat and, and, and everyone gets really well and that's really important. But I think we've always tried to instill a lot in the younger players as well, try and make them feel at home as soon as possible, but let them know that they have responsibilities as well and, and they're encouraged to, you know, speak, talk on the field and, and make sure that they feel like they have a voice also, which is important. 
Yeah, because is the intensity of this team at its best a reflection of that sort of collective character, if you like? Because I saw a session recently with Gilbert Anoka, who's done a lot of work with the All Blacks, you know, and he was the one who came up with the no dickheads rule, which is pretty much common sense more than anything else. So is the intensity of your team a product of the attitude that you just talked about? I think so. I think it obviously starts with the manager and and what he needs and what he wants. And then obviously that has to be taken down through the dressing room as well. But I think how we play and how we've always defended since the manager's come in is probably a bit different to other teams. And we defend in a way which is pretty aggressive, pretty front-footed. And if one person's not quite on the game or not quite switched on or they're a few yards late or they're a bit out of position the whole team gets found out and that's how we defend. It's not one that you can wait and sort of recover. So it's one of those, if we go, we all go together and that needs intensity, that needs everybody switched on. And, you know, I think that responsibility, knowing that every single player matters, every yard matters within that unit when you're defending. And that's also, you know, you might have a starting 11 that starts 70% of the games, but then you might have players missing in other games. Like you go back to the Barcelona game and, you know, what an unbelievable result that was. But the players we had missing that night often gets forgot as well. And that's down to great coaching and a great team spirit and the players who maybe haven't played as much that season as they would like, being ready to step in, know the job exactly and be ready to play at the intensity needed in a game like that. I think that was what made the night even more special, if possible, because it was a real squad and, and group performance. Mm. Is there a sense also of like personal accessibility, you know, maybe for some of the younger players who haven't got your experience? And on that point, you're 37, which is probably the new 31 because of all sorts of science and everything else, isn't it? What advice would you give as a 37-year-old to the 16-year-old who broke through at Leeds under Terry Venables? Oof, that's a tough one, that. Um... I don't know. I, th I think it's the process, isn't it? It's hard to say. There's, there's nothing major that I would say, do this or that, which shows that I've always learned on my way and, and looked at the senior players I was playing with. I've been fortunate for the players I've played with, the managers I've played with, and picked up things as I've gone. Obviously, if I had the football knowledge that I have now then, I'd have been a better player back <laughs> then. But, you know, it doesn't work like that. But there's nothing major that I'd turn around and say, concentrate more on this or don't do that, which... I suppose is a very good thing and you know I've been fortunate to take a good path but I think like you say it is important now that I can speed up any development of the younger guys where possible in terms of you know I remember doing this wrong or that little mistake here and there nothing major but little things that I've learned in the time you know recognizing facts and and players young players when they're not playing signed to a big club it's obviously a new thing maybe not play as much as they want you can recognize how they're feeling because you've been there as well. I've been there myself. I know exactly how you're feeling. And they obviously don't recognise that because they were really young when, if mm. not, they might not have been born when I was in their <laughs> position. They just see me as a senior player now. But That's something yeah. to get your head around. Yeah, it? exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it was when you hear some of the birth dates when they're doing uh, medical things or whatever and you hear it was like the year you made your debut and they were born and things. So it's... Um, but, yeah, I think they don't recognise... Then when you say, you know, I've been in this position before and then they know you understand how they're feeling and hopefully you can help them and, and just help them through that tough period, really. Mm. Players used to love playing for Venners, didn't they? Why is that? And, and also, what are the common characteristics of the best managers and coaches that you've played for? 
Yeah, I think in a way similar to Jurgen, probably in terms of you know likable character, you know bubbly. What you see is what you got sort of character, and you know I'd, I think I'd have liked to experience. Terry Venables as a more senior player because obviously when you're a younger player everything's like you know it's like a kid walking into a sweet shop you know you're not maybe understanding how everything works you're keeping your head down trying to you know spoke when spoken to don't attract the attention of the senior boys with any lairish gear or saying <laughs> anything keep your head down do your job clean your boots you know when you're on that training field give as hard as you get and try and make an impact on the pitch so it would have been nice to experience, you know, Terry as a as senior player as well. But it was always great with me. He was, you know, I broke through it very young at 16. And at that stage, you normally do and your, your technique work with the academy and stuff like that. And obviously, once you get to first team level, it's just team preparation, preparing for the next game. So he was, was always important. It was like in the afternoons, make sure you do your technique work because you're missing that. And always spoke to me, um, you know, after training, little things here and there, little tips when you get to the byline, try and pull it all the way back to the edge of the box was a tip he used to give me because he was like, if not, you'll never get it to the edge of the box, but if you don't quite pull it back, it'll go over the bar and go out for a goal kick. Just little, mm. you know, little gems really, which, you, you know, you think about now still. And Do teams reflect the personality of their manager? Um, yeah, I'd say a lot of the time, I think, yeah. I think, you know, that's where... The philosophy comes from that he's put in it also how the manager is in his personality as well i think you see different types of managers you see some who don't really react on the side very calm you see others who are bouncing around and you know i think jürgen's different parts at times you know early on he was he was aggressive and bouncing around the touchline then he calmed down a bit and now he's a, a bit of both and i think you know as a manager that's their job probably to judge when's needed and what and there's been times where we've had a bad performance and you expect him to come in and go mental and he hasn't he's been calm sorted us out go out and we'd do well or vice versa you know you've played pretty well and he'll come in and have a go because he thinks things can be better and keep you on your toes so you know the best managers know how to judge what how they need to be not only the messaging the delivering but also in in what style and how they are on the on the sideline as well do i need to get my team going here mm. we had um emmy martinez on the pod a couple of weeks ago and he talked about trying to counsel some of the younger players. And he, you know, he said, look, they're more interested in, in sort of byproducts of it all. You know, the, the Louis Vuitton wash bags and the personalised Range Rovers and all that sort of stuff. Are you, like him, a believer in old school values? Yeah, 100%. But I think... Um... You have to embrace both, I think, and it's important you find that mix. I don't think fully old school would work now, and vice versa. I think you, you can still learn a lot from the old school. It was done that way for a long, long time because it was the right thing to do. And, you know, young players we have here are, are absolutely fantastic. Their attitudes are great. You know, if they're stepping out of line or they're not working hard enough in the gym or they're taking their eye off the ball and they've made it, they'll get told. And I think that doesn't happen too often, to be honest. And I think that's you've got to give a lot of credit to how the academies run here. Mm. that the players aren't coming up and we're not really having to knock them into shape and because you know they don't know what's expected of them and they've got a good head on the shoulders. So to be honest, for the young players who have come through since I've been here over the years, there's none that stand out in that fashion. And I think that's, like you said, the coaching and the, how they've been brought and the values been brought up in the academy. And when they come to the first team, they know what level's expected, how hard they have to work and have to keep doing it. And, and like you said, all the other things, the nice bits and the cars and things, that's always a byproduct of, of being successful on the pitch. That all comes with playing well and, 
and playing good football. So that's always been the most important thing. Mm. Are you still doing your A-licence? Yeah, just well, just about got a couple left and then I'm done out for the... Right. So what are the factors which will decide any move into coaching for you? Because that, that's, let's be honest, that's what a lot of people expect you to do. Yeah, I think you, you never know what happens in football. I think, obviously, everyone always says you should play as long as you can. So I still feel good at this moment in time. So depends on options and things change very quickly in football. So it's hard to have a definite plan. You never know what opportunities are in front of you. And I think you just got to take them as, as they arise if you're lucky enough to have certain opportunities. You know, some days it's great. You look, you look at managers and coaches and it's great and, and things are all rosy and you have a few wins and you see managers getting brand new contracts for doing well and then six weeks later, eight weeks later under pressure and they get sacked and it's like that's the brutal side of football, I suppose. And I think any manager, you know, probably needs a couple of years to get the players in, get the club how they want it and things like that. But nobody seems to get that and that's that, that's the tough part of the business. So you look at other days and think, hmm, do I want to, do I want to be involved in that? So, you know, I think it would be a shame to move away from football with how lucky I've been with the people I've worked with and the knowledge I've, I've learned from playing with so many good players and working with managers. It'd be a shame not to help the younger guys and with me doing my badges and stuff and, and going and do sessions with the academy now. It's great to be able to mm -hmm. speak to them and, and it's obviously very different to the first team environment, which is an environment I've been involved in for such a long time. There's little things that you would expect, or not would expect, you take for granted that people know because I've been in the first team environment for so long. But the academy players, the smallest things can make such a big difference. And, you know, they're obviously like sponges. So it's been great to work with the younger guys as well. Mm. Is that part of the attraction of coaching that you're, you're looking for that advancement from someone that you're working with? You know, that little moment where the light comes on? Yeah, I think so. And I think that's probably what makes the badges harder at this moment in time because I'm going and doing a session with the guys and I might see them again. But if you're a coach and it's your team, you're doing that work in the week and then you see on the side and it's like, hang on a minute, I can really see that's that's work this week or me and this player discussed this and he's gone and scored a goal because he's made the run we were talking about and that's mm. obviously fantastic then and you know it's been taken on board. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't think you can ever beat playing but I suppose when you're helping younger players and and... You know, you can hopefully go on and see what a good career they'd have and, and you've helped that. Mm. You know, sort of giving back for what you've had yourself in terms of the senior players and the coaches who've helped you as well. Yeah, because both Jürgen and Pep Guardiola insisted when I spoke to them that a love for the game had to underpin any management career. With what's going on in the in the game today, you know, the, the criticism's increasing, the strain is, is almost institutionalised. Is it too easy... To, lose that love? I think it could be challenging at times. I think, I mean, you see the amount of media that they have to do now and like they're doing press conferences before every single game, after every game, they'll do TV, newspapers, radio. And that's, if you're playing three games a week, that's a lot of talking and a lot of people who are trying to get one slip out of you in that time. So, you know, that's the journalist's job. They're trying to get that line that and you might say something, but when you've been bombarding and you're saying the same thing over and over, and then obviously you have a different story which you want to put in public compared to the one that you have in amongst the group sometimes, you know, sometimes it has to be, you know, it's us against the world and you're going to get criticism when things aren't going well at big clubs and when you're getting praise and things are going well, it's important not to get too up. So it's it would be very easy to lose that love, I, I think, as well, but... If you don't have that, I think that's very difficult as well. And the love of the game probably helps you 
make the decisions you truly believe in in terms of it might not always be a popular decision but you love the game and you really think it's the right thing you might see that and eight people disagree with you but you're the one steering the ship and you know mm. the best managers nine times out of ten are, are right and they'll always get questioned for it but I think that love of the game and that belief in yourself I think obviously yeah that's really important yeah because managers you know are getting less and less time to build a team, aren't they? Mm. And the harshness in the environment, I heard recently of one manager, no names, no pack drill, he was sacked and he took off in a camper van because he just wanted to isolate himself from all the madness that he'd had in the previous few months. Is that sort of environment putting people off from pursuing a career in the EFL or, or in, in, in the championship? Because I'm hearing a lot of coaches saying, I, can't, I just don't want to have the aggro. I'll just go and do an under-21 job or under-23 job. Yeah, I would think so. I think, you know, obviously it's a results business. And like we said, you're not going to get along if results aren't good. And you're always going to have opinion. When things aren't going well, there's always going to be plenty of opinions about. But as the manager, it's always going to be you. It could be a player's going through a hard time off the field nobody knows about. And that's why he's playing poorly or things out of the manager's control that he can't really control but it'll always fall on the manager's shoulders and you know it's probably like being in a goldfish bowl and everything leads to you when things aren't going well and like you say if that's the case and you're not really given the time to turn it round because football careers you know you have peaks and troughs and, and football teams can't be on form forever so you're always going to have tough spells but if you're not given time to see what you're working on come to fruition if you like, as the first time of trouble you get sacked, it, you're sort of fighting a losing battle, really. So I think, you know, if you get the opportunity for a job, I think it's about taking the right one and, and having someone who understands that. But I can definitely 100% see why people would say, do you know what, I don't need that. I'll go, like you say, and and go down the, a route with less pressure. But again, with all that difficult side that we've just talked about there, when you do get it right, it must feel all the more special when you're a manager and you've have seen what you've created as a, you know, like like Pep and, and, and Jürgen, the jobs they've done and what they've created in the trophies they've won, that must be all that more special mm. and appreciate that much more when you have been through the tough times. Yeah. There's a final point and, and on a positive point, really. You know, the one thing that I envy as an observer is the emotional charge that must come with playing for a team like Liverpool in a stadium like Anfield, or, you know, one of those sort of mythical nights. Can you put into words the enjoyment factor? Because, you know, when we talk about football, it's all pressure and everything else, which, you know, we've talked about already. But the actual enjoyment factor, the thing that grabs you and maybe reconnects you with a kid that you once were. It's probably the moments after the final whistle, I think. You know, it's very hard in a game unless you know, 7-0 up or something like that. It's very hard in a game to enjoy it. So you have to win. You're expected to win at Liverpool every single game. You know, you know, you take your foot off the gas, you can get found out. And then obviously over recent seasons when we've been going for the title, you know, we've had over 90 points three times, which is an incredible amount of points and only won the league title once. And you know, even when you've won that game for that half an hour after the game, everyone's happy and we've done the job. But you know, three days later, you have to go again. It's like, right, we go again. So I think that is one of the things that's most difficult that you probably don't get enough chance to enjoy the successes. Last year, you know, we won two cup competitions. 
but you're in the middle of the season, so you don't really get a chance to enjoy it. You win a league title or Champions League, amazing, go on a parade, you know, some of the best days of your life. See the city, that's the moment you enjoy it and you see the fans and how much money they've spent and followed you around Europe and the joy in their faces and you look around at your teammates and you say, we've achieved this together. You go on holiday for three weeks, come back and the next day it's like, right, that's gone, next one. So that's probably the one thing when you do achieve something, you don't have long enough to enjoy it. And that's the thing about top level sport, I suppose. It's something you look back on, you know, hopefully have a reunion in 10, 15 years time and, you know, you think about that, but they're the times and, and when you create those special moments, you know, like we go back to the Barcelona ones because it's probably one of the best nights here. You turn something around and you're all stood together in front of the cop. Yeah, you know, you, the hair's still go up on the back of your neck now thinking about it and that's, they're the moments and there is a lot of, you know, tough times and, and disappointments and poor results, you know, that's the worst feeling ever when you lose a game and you go home and you just want to put it right. That is a feeling I definitely will not miss when I've finished playing, but like we've said before, that makes the successes all that much more sweeter. Mm. Well, I'm sure it wasn't a coincidence that you mentioned the 7-0 scoreline, but uh, thanks very much for your time, mate. I really appreciate it. No worries, thanks. Thanks. Well, that was a fascinating insight into um, a really interesting but low-key character. You know, most players you'd see before they maybe went off to do their latest TikTok video. <laughs> well, James uh, was off to his parents' evening at school. So, you know, that conformed to a certain stereotype. Dom, do you share my sense that he's got a long-term future in the game? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fact that he's he's very close to concluding those you go for coaching badges and 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 it's clearly somebody that has learned and soaked up knowledge from the various managers he's had at you know Leeds Newcastle Villa City Liverpool over the years uh, and England um he, he he's he's made for some role coaching management in the game in the future once he's once he eventually does hang up his boots he's really level-headed thoughtful for somebody that made his debut at what was it 16 I mean he's he's no reason to be phased by anything that the game might throw at him although I was quite interested that he he acknowledges that that what can happen when you are a manager will take him out of his comfort zone it will take him into areas that he hasn't been before and that will continue in uh, the education and the the learning process that he's been on since he made his debut as a fleet-footed winger, really, at, at Leeds all those years ago. Yeah, I thought, Migs, there were some really interesting insights into the culture that Jurgen Klopp has nurtured at, at Anfield. Yeah, especially, I suppose, in light of what we've been talking about earlier on in the discussion and how Milner... Is 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 a totem there? I also what was really striking, I suppose, was him talking about what he tell his younger self. I mean, he was and also when he when he was, what was a real insight I thought, or or just that, that kind of the kind of universality of it when he was talking about how when he when he's overhearing say some of his teammates filling in medical forms, and when he hears their uh, <laughs> the, the year of their birth, because <laughs> <laughs> actually just as he was talking about this, I was I was even thinking myself. I remember, I suppose this is given away my, my, my own advancing age at this point as well. I think, I think the day of his first goal, I was listening to Five Live or maybe it was one of the Irish stations in my university job 
uh, in a service station back in Ireland, um, <laughs> which is a fair, fair chunk of time ago in itself. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's I suppose we've got someone Milner, and this very much came across the interview who's come through this probably a period in football where there's been more change than any other. And that's from everything from the kind of wider game to how it's played. Milner has absorbed all that, clearly has the kind of mindset to absorb all that. Hence, he's been so valuable to Klopp. And it looks like he's going to be very valuable going forward. Yeah, true. I suppose the only proviso that I had, Dom, was that he would be going into a disposable profession. I suppose you could understand anyone's caution before committing to something like that. Yeah, absolutely. But he's he's bright enough to... Well, he knows that. He recognises that. He's seen enough of it. He's, he's, he's experienced the game, you know, 20-odd years. He, he's he's seen the the chaos at Leeds and, you know, what happened at, at Newcastle Villa. And, and then he's, he's also worked under... You know, in, and almost more more successful at the top of the game and under Klopp and at, at at City. So I think he's 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 seen all facets of that. I think you're going with his eyes open to that to that aspect of the job. I I, I just look, honestly, I just I'd have loved it. I, weirdly, when he was talking about the advice that Terry Venables gave him as a player. I will be imparting that advice to the under 14s team that I coach on a Monday night now. And it's 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 obvious things like that that you just don't think about, and the fact that he's it's obviously it's lodged in his brain and it's it's influenced his playing career, and and that's just one snippet. He's got all of this to impart upon players, whether it be under 23s at, at a Premier League club or even first team players when he gets his chance in in management full time, and he, he's got so much knowledge in there. The only thing I'd add on it. We all look at James Milner as this amazing workhorse of a player playing fantastically well at 37 and, and, and filling, fulfilling a role for Jurgen Klopp. On the pitch at the Bernabeu, there was a player that was three months older than him who absolutely dictated the play. Luka Modric is a phenomenon. And I, I just I, and we all know it, I'm not stating the obvious, but it's, it's always you watch him and you don't realise he's he's 37. With the greatest respect to James Milner, when you watch him play in the huff and puff, etc., and, and 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 you sort of see all the see how he sort of gets up and down. There's always this marvel that he's still able to do it at that age. Well, Modric does it without even breaking into a sweat. Mm, well, that's a special special player, isn't he? How much emotion goes into decisions with former players, Migs? You know, I'm thinking here. You know, there's an obvious symmetry with James Milner staying on the staff at Anfield that similarly you know FA Cup weekend one great storyline will be Vincent Company going back to Manchester City you know people are already saying oh well he's Pep's successor you know does emotion get in the way yeah, possibly, yeah, and and you could argue actually, of course, that's often been too. Um, it's been too easy for football to always think in those terms that well, oh, here's former player plays a similar system to what we've got. Let's rush him up to be our manager. Sometimes it works, as in the case of Mikel Arteta, although not without a lot of investment from Arsenal, not least patience. To be fair to them, but a lot of time it doesn't, as you could see, say Manchester United. And yeah, and again, that was one of the that was one of the very interesting aspects. About the um, about the Milner interview and that 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 discussion you had with him about when you get to that level, whatever. Well, so many of them want to stay in coaching because they want to stay in the game. Probably takes a, a, a specific personality to be willing to 
to put up with all of the noise around management. Many of that noise, of course, the media contributes to. And more specific personality, again, to be able to withstand that noise at the very, very top clubs. But then, of course, that's 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 one of the areas where you're maybe kind of playing experience at the, or being a club legend, these sort of clubs comes into it because there is that awareness of what it's like being in the cauldron in that sense. But then, as so many of them testify, there's a difference between being one of the players and then being the man in which everything falls on. Mm. See, if I'm looking ahead at you know potential coaches and managers in the future, you know, I, I think of Adam Lalana, Dom. You know, he's just signed a new contract to the end of next season at Brighton. Uh, Brighton play Grimsby in the FA Cup at the weekend. I'm assuming that they're going to be the neutrals' favourites, aren't they? Grimsby, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Says a Crystal Palace fan. <laughs> Look, um, well, I think on that day, actually, with all seriousness, the world will be rooting for Grimsby because they are the, a wonderful story. And, and uh, you know, after what they did at Southampton in the previous round, they you always go with the, the underdog. But generally speaking... I wouldn't say Brighton have been revelatory this season because I think we we all saw it coming and they were excellent for long periods of last season and finished in the top half. But what what is brilliant about Brighton is it, I'm not saying anything new. It's it's the it's their ability to to react to what most would perceive to be huge setbacks. You lose Graham Potter, you actually appoint a an upgrade on him in in Deserby overnight, which which. Is, is astounding it's a brilliant talent to have it says everything about the way that they they are a forward thinking club and it's the same with with player recruitment etc if they'd lost Moises Casado in January they they would have had a player lined up to to come in um, if they lose him in the summer they will have a player lined up to come in so they will be stronger for the with the finances and and moving forward and that that is remarkable for that reason yeah they they, they could be disruptors in the in the top half of the Premier League and certainly in, in pursuit of European places. Uh, weirdly, they didn't play particularly well on, on Wednesday night, but they, they they won against Crystal Palace for the first time in in quite a few years and it just maintains their momentum going into into the, the cup tie and the, and the international break. Mm. That begs the question, doesn't it, Migs? Given the model that Brighton operate, is De Zerbe rather like his best players, almost treading water and will eventually move on. Well, I mean, there's already a lot of murmurs that he would, of course, see this. Well, I mean, that's why he's at Brighton. It's a stepping stone, which is it's unfortunate, but it's where Brighton are. And I suppose one of, one of the keys to Brighton's success is they've actually accepted this. So they're almost using the way club managers and players see them like this to, them set, to propel themselves. It's, it's a really kind of uh, self-sustainable model in that way. But also, there's a few, there's increasing clubs looking at Deserby. I mean, I know for a fact that had things really tailspun with Potter, uh, Chelsea would have considered him. Roma might have, which would have, I mean, that would have settled off they had they gone to Brighton again. <laughs> um, but Roma, a lot of people are waiting to see what happens there, especially if Mourinho wins something this year and then potentially leaves, but who knows. But again, a lot of the big Italian clubs looking at Deserby, and yeah. Uh, it, it does feel a little bit actually as if we're kind of after a, what a decade when we had a real set of kind of five or six of the really elite managers Guardiola, Klopp, 
previously Mourinho, you would have said Simeone, who's kind of going that way as well. Where there is a proper new generation coming through, doing things in a different way. Arteta being the chief of them, who could well win a Premier League this year, and Deserbi as well, and especially given how, how tactically different Deserbi has been as well. Hmm. Well, Manchester United have got yet another home draw, this time against Fulham. Dom, I'm particularly looking forward to, well, on the proviso that um, you know, teams aren't rotated, but I would really love to see Mitrovic against Martinez. That would be something straight out of WWE, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, they, there's, a, there's a certain amount of spikiness there with both of those characters. Uh, it's quite an important game for Fulham, this, actually. I, I'm, I'm sensing them that... They've had a tiny little dip in the league. They've, obviously, they've been a wonderful success story throughout this season. Marcus Hill has done an incredible job there. But there's another manager that will attract interest come the summer, depending on what happens at bigger clubs. And it's almost like when you've been sort of around, in and around the European places for most of the season, unexpectedly, admittedly, but but you've, you've, been, you've been in there, you've infiltrated it. And then if you have a little dip at the end... It, 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 that it's almost like a hangover that carries you into the summer. I think they there's there's actually almost more onus on Fulham to 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 do. Well, that's probably that's that's probably me being very unfair because it's a daunting tie to go to Manchester United, uh, and if they click, which they haven't done of of late that often, then they'll be they'll be a real that'll be difficult for, for Fulham to get a result there. But I'm, I'm very interested. I'm intrigued to see how Fulham recover from these little setbacks that they've had of late because they were very, very insipid against Arsenal, particularly in the, the first half at Craven Cottage the other day. And obviously so much of their their play actually depends less on which feature more on Palinho in, in, in midfield. And, and without him, they 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 lack the steel. You know, they, they've, they've been lucky enough to have him for... A, for the vast majority of their season. Um, but when he hasn't featured, they've not been the same team. Mm. Similarly with Manchester United and Casemiro, isn't it, Miggs? Is he a victim of the disciplinary culture of the English game? Maybe, but I actually, I was thinking about this a lot the last few days and because it's something that I, I was I was talking to colleagues in Spain about who are pointing to just how it's really striking to them how... Um, how suddenly Casemiro's being disciplined all the time because the view in Spain was always we had this kind of invisibility cloak and got away with it so often. But that's, of course, all the more interesting because England is generally perceived as a league that, that lets it flow more. And we would, I suppose, constantly point to the uh, officiousness of continental referees in that way. So that, that's something I've actually been mulling over a lot the last few days. I don't really quite know how to explain well, I mean, again, some of us possibly down to kind of the, this constant evolution in how referees have to uh, officiate matches, not least then the kind of the constant back and forth of the rules themselves. But it's remarkable, really. I mean, we're at the point like Casemiro said he, he's going to miss up to what just over a fifth of a Premier League season, which is a significant number of games, and of course, all 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 the more. Influential, given how important he's been at Manchester United. Is it, is it down to the pace? Do you think? I mean, I know he's he's a he, he's a, a magnificent player, and and obviously reads the game fantastically well. But but I imagine that the I imagine that the pace of a Premier League game might be slightly more might be slightly higher than than 
than La Liga. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's uh, I've just lurched into cliche there again. But I mean, I, I don't. Well, that is true. I think yeah. it's not so much. I I, I don't have yeah, a problem with him. I mean, the, the sending off, first sending off that he had was for almost exceptional <laughs> circumstances, putting his his hands around. Will Hughes' neck. But actually, if you go back a few days prior to that, the booking that he got that cost him a, a game suspension for yellow cards against, I think it was Wilfred Zaha he brought down. I mean, it, it, Zaha just got away from him late in the game and he just cynically brought him down. And I don't think you could argue that wasn't that wasn't a booking. Likewise, I, d- I don't think you can really argue that wasn't a sending off at the weekend. I mean, they're, they're just, I don't know, maybe, maybe he's just physicality of the... And that's sort of the constant nature that every game is frantic. Maybe, maybe just leaving a bit jaded. I don't know. Well, I mean, yeah, jadedness is actually possibly a big issue there as well. That because we are seeing to we are starting to see that seep in. Mm. Just on on you know the demands on players and priorities you know which are set by those demands. Migs, the final or the the last of those four quarterfinals. This might sound a bit heretical, but would it be better? For Sheffield United, who've obviously got promotion on their mind, to go out to Blackburn. <laughs> I mean, this is—I mean, even that question is almost a spin. On it's a—it's a spin on the usual way to discuss because usually that, that's always contextualised by how teams are doing the Premier League. But then, of course, this is actually a trickle down from that problem, isn't it? Because it's all about the wealth of the Premier League, I suppose. You know, there was a there was a period when I would have said ultimately the reality for clubs has to be they've got they've got to try and get up get 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 to that wealth for their own futures. But I think I, I've I've done a complete one eighty in that these days. And you, well, it's actually especially given how repetitive football is seen and how even the championship or at least the top end of the championship has almost become Premier League B with the same few clubs going back up in kind of in a more rotational way than ever before. What matters in football is actually days you remember, and for that perspective, from that perspective, Sheffield United should be all in on the FA Cup for me, especially given what the next up is a day at Wembley. You know, again, that's something else that's been discussed as radical. Given the semi-final should be shouldn't be played at Wembley, but that's the reality now, and that's something people remember. Yeah, I agree with that. We are entering the first post World Cup uh, international break, Dom. A lot of managers looking over their shoulders during international breaks, traditionally. Close to home, I know. Patrick Vieira at Palace. He's certainly under pressure, isn't he? Yeah, very much so. I mean, 11 without a win in the Premier League, no wins this calendar year in any competition. It's... I Look, the fallout from, from losing to Brighton, for all that they were... They did quite well. Palace did quite well in the first... 10 15 minutes and should really have opened the scoring there the insipid nature of the second half performance in particular was quite damning and and I did look at Vieira on the on the touchline <laughs> drenched in the dry and drizzle and uh, drizzle and and just he just looked a bit lost he just looked at, he had that uh, that sort of haggard look that you get when you when you know what's coming he's got an emotional game on Sunday at the moment at Arsenal if indeed he's still in charge for that game because I do think that Palace now have to look at it and and make a big decision they're at a crossroads as a club they've got a decision on the management they've, they've really got to work out what's going on in terms of the ownership uh, the ambition 
you know how where they intend to move forward as a club because I do think that I feel I feel sorry for Patrick Vieira in many ways I think he's he's been sold a bit of a pup in in some respects I don't think his squad is quite as good as as maybe the the run into last season suggested they've been so passive all this season so passive and they've lacked Conor Gallagher's Conor Gallagher's energy in midfield and it's it's really come back to haunt them badly through a quirk the quirk of the fixture list as well I mean they've had a horrible run of fixtures a horrible run of games and they've got what on paper looks like a a, a good run in but they will be going into that run in with absolutely devoid of belief devoid of confidence and at this stage of the season quite often the only way of reviving that in a playing squad is by getting a fresh voice in the dugout on the training ground and seeing if you can coax the quality back out of the players that, that's really just taken a battering in in, uh, in recent times. I fear for him. I really do. Mm. Decent man. Like, I don't want to really just draw everything together now by looking at the bigger picture. There's a sense, I think, Migs, that there's a, a new era being created in, in plain sight here. You've got UEFA considering co-owned clubs are allowing co-owned clubs to compete in the same competition. You've got a, a challenge from FIFA directly, you know, this new 24-team club competition, which seems a bit of a farce because if you've won the Champions League, you go straight into the final. The tectonic plates are still shifting, aren't they? Yeah, uh, I'd be very concerned for football's future in that way. I, I'm actually, I have to say, that news about Sheffield broke just before we came or we came to record. I was absolutely staggered by his comments is in that uh, interview, especially at a point where multi-club projects have been, there's increasing concern about them. They've been pointed out in, in UEFA's own review, there was a concern expressed about the growth of them. They've been pointed out repeatedly as a real issue for the game, especially for how they handle the very identity of clubs. UEFA's rules about them have previously been about sporting integrity. So it's absolutely amazing that Sheffern is thrown back. I mean, really, he should be looking to kind of enforce greater restrictions, not be open to this sort of thing. And to me, I wrote about this on Tuesday, combined with um, with how with, with FIFA basically just bloating the calendar even further. A lot of football governance, governance isn't fit for purpose. There's too many vested interests. And this is summed up by the fact that FIFA and UEFA are basically in competition with each other. There is, and, and it's it, it's amazing to say, I mean, one of the Super League's big arguments now, and it's amazing I'm pointing to something as, you know, as grotesque as the Super League, as, as a, kind of any sort of kind of uh, argument in this. Well, that was a symptom of an of a genuine issue, which which is separate to what the Super League is, which is the kind of almost conflict that, bodies like UEFA have, UEFA and FIFA have, where they're both supposed to be regulatory bodies that oversee the game, but are also in competition in the marketplace because they organize competitions. Uh, and th- th- this is why there is a, le- leaving aside the Super League, but it, this is what's given the Super League motivation. There, there are big questions to be asked about whether there should be walls put in place there, because we're getting ourselves into an absolute, we're at the point where, Global football itself needs an independent regulator, and that should be FIFA's role. But then FIFA themselves, they want their own version of the Champions League. They want more wealth. Infantino wants to kind of consolidate his political power, and which is how he's used this 
growing split between Western Europe, where all of football's money is, lamentably, it should be said, because it, it should be spread out, and the global South that he, of course, used in that farcical press conference at the start of the World Cup. And yeah, I have to say, I'm at, I'm at a point, and it's pretty come across in mean, how many times I've spoken on the podcast, but there are so many fault lines developing in football right now. Right, even if you want to go to state ownership, and, and the more recent one, which is private equity, looking to capitalise on football. And all, all, these are all contributing factors to these problems, especially that of multi-club ownership. And the solution to everything on it just seems to be, well, we'll just throw in a few more games. Nothing else is ever thought about. Who who in football is actually like who is who is there any sort of team that is looking to try to show some sort of foresight where the game is going, what the game should be for? There's absolutely nothing. It's remarkable. Mm. And meanwhile, Dom, the World Cup is just morphing into a monster, isn't it? You know, 2026. It's going to be longer, 39 days. There are going to be more matches, 104, and additional teams, 48. <laughs> um, are FIFA basically killing the golden goose here? Well, look, it ties into exactly what Mick said, and I couldn't agree with him more. He was he was uh, spot on. It's all a, a competition between UEFA and FIFA to A, be the dominant force in world football and B, rake in as much money as they possibly can, make the game bigger, the jamborees bigger. That That's their big show, showcase event, uh, showpiece event and... Yeah, more teams are better. Let's let's get it in. Let's make it let's make it truly global by getting every single country on the planet to to take part. And uh, no, it's uh, it's a madness. But it's you know it's not come as a huge surprise. I, I, on the multi club model, just just to add, I I find it remarkable as well. And I think you know it would only take somebody from UEFA to go and ask. Botafogo fans or Crystal Palace fans what they think of the multi club model for them to realise that possibly this isn't the way to go. Well, the domino effect is underway. State-sponsored clubs are a reality. And since money talks, UEFA will probably bend their rules over co-owned clubs. When it comes to FIFA, of course, we know that money screams. It's estimated the next World Cup will generate 11 billion, that's billion, dollars. Who cares if the football numbers don't add up? Well, we should. That's why I hope there will always be a place for observers of the quality of Miguel and Dom to hold the authorities to account. It's also why the game needs level-headed characters like James Milner. I wish him all the best for the future. (laughs) 